Hi everyone, my name is Michaela, and this is the My Vinyasa Practice Podcast, Heartfelt Consciousness, where we spotlight stories from our community to uplift the collective consciousness. Thank you for being here and enjoy the episode. Hello everyone, welcome back to the My Vinyasa Practice Podcast, Heartfelt Consciousness. My name is Michaela, and we have a special treat today. Uh, Michelle Young, CEO, is back with us to talk with us a little bit about Tantra. So Michelle, let's start. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Michaela? I'm good. I'm excited to have you here and talk about this Tantra because of the 200 hour that we have. And also it's been like spreading across social media. I feel like I'm seeing it everywhere. All of our students are posting about their Tantra stuff. So very cool. I'm excited to answer some questions for you. So what, what does Tantra mean? What does that mean? So, so Tantra literally is translated as to loom or to weave. And it is actually, um, it's a system of yoga that came about after the yoga sutras of Patanjali it basically just takes and integrates different styles of yoga into a personal practice. So it, it, what I like about it is it meets everyone where they're at and it allows them to really curate and cultivate a practice that fits their needs and gives them a sadhana that is true to their lived experience. It sounds like a very, it sounds very silly, but it's like a very yoga-esque yoga. <laughs> it is. It really is. It, um, you know, people get confused a lot of times. They think that, you know, hatha yoga is, you know, one type of yoga, but hatha yoga is actually a combination of different yoga techniques, right? So we have, you know, the physical asanas, we have the pranayama and we have kriya. That's the primary foundation of hatha yoga. Um, we, we could look at, you know, Raja's yoga and, and it has different components or aspects of practice. Um, Ashtanga is the same thing. It has different aspects of practice, but ultimately Tantra says, you know, here are all of the different aspects of practices. And then here are the different, you know, lineages and, um, ways that these practices are brought together. And you can take that and you can curate your own sadhana based on your heartfelt desire and that's what i think is really unique about tantra oh i'm gonna touch more on heartfelt desire in a little bit because that brings up a great question um how, when did you get into tantra and why did you get into tantra um you know i started i think that was my primary practice that was the um initial sort of descent into yoga for me. Um, and I was interested in it because I knew inherently that it was a combination of different yogic tools. A lot of people have a misunderstanding about the word Tantra. They, they automatically think that it is a form of, you know, like, um, of Kula, uh, which is Kula Tantra is a, one of the schools of Tantra but it's not the only, it's not the only sort of school and it's not the only um, way to experience Tantra. But ultimately people think of Tantra and they think of it as an externalized practice. They think of it as a sexual sensual practice. Um, and that's not necessarily what it is. Um, I was looking for a way to integrate my devotion and again, heartfelt desire, my, um, 
my love of God and the divine into a, a ritualistic, physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual practice. And Tantra just lends itself to that. And the, the steps that you go through, the, the schools of Tantra sort of take you through these different practices until you get to the more subtle uh, school of Tantra, which is Samyaya. And this is the practice that's mostly internal and you really are um, cultivating internal ritual. It's, it's not very public. You're not really talking a lot about it. It's not something that you do um, with a lot of other people, but it, it's sadhana nonetheless. So for me, it was, it was something that I really started out with. Um, and then I explored, you know, different, more linear uh, practices and lineages um, from that sort of, I guess, wheelhouse, if you will. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like you've, you've said before, you started with the more meditative internal practices before you came to the more like physical external. Um, and I love how you tied pies in there too, making it a very mm -hmm. holistic experience. Um, someone asked me today in office hours what a tantra might look like. And I was like, well, I think an, from my understanding, I think an hour long tantra class could be a lot of things. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it definitely would weave aspects of, you know, of asana, of pranayama, of mantra, of kriya, you know, of banda in there. I mean, like you could really integrate all of those things into a tantric offering. Um, there is a lot of ritual in tantra and a lot of it um, begins with externalizing. And that's really what we do. I think what I find so interesting about Tantra is it follows human psychology um, to a T. We first have to externalize uh, before we can internalize. And so we see things externally and, and we, we sort of start to mirror those things. Um, and and we, we look at like the sun, for example, in awe. You know, that's a representation of Surya, which is one of the original sort of godheads or god figures of Brahman. And when we look at you know, Surya, and we're like, oh, the divine is in the sun, right? It's so easy for us to externalize that it's harder for us to say, oh, but the divine is in me too, right? It, to internalize that is much more challenging. You know, I've even seen some things on your Instagram where it's like, you know, being, you know, externalizing helps to ground you and helps to make you feel connected to those things. And then the more we, we integrate that externalization into our practice, the more we integrate the internalization of those aspects of the divine into our own lived experience and our own recognition of self. And that is sort of when, you know, samadhi is, is present in the daily experience. And, th and that's what we're going for. You know, ultimately Tantra says that every aspect of our lives is an effort to uh, self-realization. I love that you put a very high, a high level description to what I was doing, I didn't even realize it, you know, it was kind of like the, the, the moniker, like get outside and stand in some grass to feel better, you know, but there's truth in that, I guess the yeah. externalization first before the internalization. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. And that's what we saw a lot in the training itself, you know, in the Tantra training, everybody's, uh, you know, in a different page of the same book. That's, you know, a quote, one of my friends said, 
a long time ago. And I think that that's so true. We're all reading the same, the same book. We're just in a different place. Right. And so some people are like, oh, you know, the sun and the, the birds, the flowers, like they're, the God is everywhere, you know? And then there's, you know, some people are like, ah, oh, the scriptures, the rituals, you know, the God is in the rituals and the scriptures. And then there's some people are like, ah, oh, it's in me, I, it's here, it's embodied right here. And so everybody's sort of making their way home um, and through this practice of Tantra, we really are using um, the different aspects that we find within yoga to, to come home. And ultimately what we have to remember when we're talking about yoga of any type is that all of these different aspects or tools um, or practices um, or elements, you know, you could even say of sadhana are just ways for us to remember who we are and, and what wholeness really is. And so if I'm externalizing, you know, that's totally fine because that too is part of the wholeness. You know, we don't want to divorce ourselves from the sun and the stars and the moon and, you know, the birds, et cetera. We want to remember that, no, I am part of that. That is an extension of the energy that is living and breathing through me. Right. So when I connect with that and that makes me feel grounded and it makes me feel integrated and then I can draw on that feeling through resourcing, you know, that's a lot of the, you know, internal puja, right? The internal ritual is like, oh, I've developed an inner resource and now I can draw on that when I'm not feeling, you know, stable or I, or I don't feel connected or I don't feel whole, you know, yoga brings us back to union. It brings us back to yoke. And the more we come back into a state of samadhi, the more we experience self-realization, the more established we are there, the more we, we are living in that present enlightened state. Thank you for drawing it all together for me. And that kind of leads me into my next question. So in the timeline, when we're looking at yoga, it sounds like Tantra might incorporate practices that are some of the oldest yogic practices around. Yeah. Yeah. It's very heavily rooted in the Hindu practices. So, you know, and pre-colonial practices. So one of the things that we have to remember as post-colonial yogis and is that a lot of the practices that we have in yoga studios or you know even the practices that were brought to us by our own lineage krishna maracharya you know iyengar you know patabi joyce these practices are post colonial practices krishna maracharya was actually part of the post colonial yoga resurgence you know he was one of the you know four figures that was you know, really shaping what yoga was going to look like post-colonization. And so we have to understand that what we do in a yoga studio today is modernized. You know, these ancient practices are, are definitely leading us to, you know, these more subtle sort of states that it's, it's called Antara yoga. And it's the last three limbs of Patanjali's yoga sutras, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So those more subtle practices. And really that's the more advanced yogic practices. And those are like, I believe Nashala said, the ones that you have to experience, right? 
Yes. 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 You have to experience them. You know, it's I, I, every teacher says it a little differently. I was taught, you know, the first five can be taught and the last three have to be caught. You know, that's how I was taught. Um, but I, I do think that we can teach through our lived experience. We are modeling. And that's one thing that, you know, I always go back to when I talk about teaching anything, you know, whether it's yoga or whether it's math, right? As a teacher and as a teacher who's had experience teaching math and teaching yoga, you can model, you know, presence, you can model clarity, you can model calm. And these things are required for you to understand calculus, right? But I, I can't teach calculus if you don't have those things, you know? And so you might say, well, you can't teach calculus. Well, sure, if, if you don't have presence, clarity, and calm, you can't teach calculus. But I can model that for my students. And when I model that for my students, I set them up for success for the mechanical things that they're doing, right? So these five things that are mechanical, right? Yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, those things are the mechanical practices. And those are just the mechanical practices from the, from the perspective of Patanjali's sutras from Rajas Yoga. You could go to Jnana Yoga and there are different mechanical practices. You can go to Bhakti Yoga and there are different mechanical practices. And these are all different you know, lineages that are associated with Tantra and available to the Tantric practice. But those final stages a teacher can model Antara yoga for their students. And then the student knows, ah, A, it's accessible. I can get there. And B, this is what it looks like, right? And so that's one of the things that I, has been a really important part of teaching and, and the way that I try to teach teachers is, we don't have to know everything and we don't have to have the answers, you know, for everything. But what we do want to do is we want to model our sadhana. What, what is our sadhana producing? Not the fruits, but what is it producing in, in the energetic experience so that our students can see, ah, when you have this practice, this is the result. And then that's how they're going to be able to catch those last three limbs. Thank you. Um, I I don't think I've ever considered the modeling those those three, but I mean it makes total sense, right? If I'm asking my students to do something and then I'm not emanating the same thing, why are they going to do what I'm asking them to do? Um, so I really I really like what I'm hearing. Kind of correct me if I'm hearing wrong, but I like this feel of tantra that everything is welcome is kind of what it sounds like. All of the mm -hmm. practices are welcome. Mm -hmm. All of the practices are welcome. Everything is, you know, it's always a yes and, right? We're always like, yes, I will take this. And, you know, there's also this. Tantra can be dualized and it can also be non-dualized. So, you know, there are always two perspectives on everything. And when we teach Tantra in the training itself, AP and I do a really good job of talking about the fact that 
dualized and non-dualized philosophy are really this opposite sides of the same coin. You know, it's, it's really just a different way to look at the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to have a little bit of everything. That, um, that's the kind of person I am. So I like that. I like the permission to take, take a little bit of it all. Um, so that leads me into my next question. You talked about dualized and non-dualized. So is that similar to when you talk about the right hand versus the left hand path when we're looking at Tantra? So actually, no, not so much. Dualized and non-dualized refer to more of the perspective on like, you know, what, whether I believe that there is a God versus, you know, the being or whether there is just being, right? So in the non-dual perspective or the non-dual, you know, thought process, we are being awareness is the same or synonymous with the essence of Brahman, right? There's no separation, Shiva, Shakti, all of these things can't be separated. And then you can go even further and you can say, well, there's Kashmir Shaivism and there's Vedanta. And Vedanta says, you know, well, it's really all about Brahman. And, you know, Kashmir Shaivism says, no, you can't leave out, you know, Shakti. So like the Shiva Shakti, like whereas they can't be separated, you have to give them equal credit, right? So there's different philosophies even within the non-dual space. Um, and then dualized is like, oh no, there's definitely a separation. There's an us-them situation. There's a Brahman and then there's the human being and the human being has Brahman inside of them, but it is not Brahman. It's sort of the Patanjali's uh, dualized uh, thought processes. You have a body, you have a mind, but you are not your body, you are not your mind, right? That's dualized, right? But if we're talking about the left-hand path versus the right-hand path, the right-hand path is really the path of, you know, like sadhana for, you know, internal and external fortitude, right? You know, how can I devote my life to God? Ishvara pranadama in, 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 a, in an individual experience, right? And it got so, you know, strict and it got so, you know, like, um, I, I don't want to, looking for the right word, but it was strict, I guess, is the best way to say it, that the left-hand path came about. And the left-hand path is a more modern path. It is not, it is not an ancient path. The right-hand path is the ancient path. And the right-hand path has literally nothing to do with the left-hand path in, in the fact that it's, the, it's not about the other. The, the right-hand path is about you you are on a spiritual journey and the spiritual journey is all about you, right? It's not about your husband. It's not about your friends. It's not about anybody else. Now, the left-hand path is like, oh, we are all one and we should all experience this oneness and this, this sacredness in, you know, the, the Amrita that we carry as as beings right now amrita is the nectar of life and it's associated with um the genitals it's associated with the reproductive system etc so the left hand path the true left hand path is associated with the the maintaining and the cultivating of amrita up the central channel to awaken kundalini energy 
Now, what this means is if you are truly a left-hand path Tantra yogi, you do not have an orgasm at all. And in fact, the, all the practices around it are to prevent that from happening. It's also very one-sided. It's, it's very much um, from, from what I understand, and I am a right-hand Tantra yogi. I'm not a left-hand Tantra yogi, but from what I understand, the left-handed path is very much about the, the female, the woman being the teacher. And it's the woman's responsibility to teach and educate the aspirant who is, you know, in many cases, the, the man. Now, when we actually led this training, we had a lot of gender fluid and, you know, um, neurodivergent, um, you know, non-binary individuals that were in the training. And so there was a lot of conversation around this, you know, around like, well, is that really even applicable today? And, you know, what does that mean? And that's a lot of responsibility to put on, you know, the woman, you know, here, because it's very strict. And the, 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 the ancient texts that are surrounding this type, these types of practices are not fun loving white Tantra, like you see today in modern Tantric practices, the, the white Tantra that you see, or the, um, the more sexually like geared or skewed Tantric practices, those are largely modernized practices that from what I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of direct reference to primary sources, to primary source text. And that's the big red flag for me. If it's not linking back to a sutra that's 5,000 plus years old, I don't know where they're getting it from because these things are thousands and thousands of years old. Now, there are sutras that talk about this stuff, but when they talk about them, they're talking about using the muscles to literally, again, stop that muscular sort of release and to move that energy up the central channel to push Kundalini energy up to meet Adi Shakti. So we're, we're, creating a, a, a union of sorts between the divine and our own divine energy, right? And, and that's the mechanism, that's the method that's used is, you know, partner and partner come together and they are going to push this energy up through this central channel so that they both unite with this divine sort of, you know, Adi Shakti, this universal consciousness. And that is creating a kundalini bliss state. So again, the, like the practices are, are very restrictive when it comes to pleasure. And it's not, about, it's not about the end. It's about how long can you go and how intense is the intellectual high? Interesting. Okay. So how intense is the intellectual high? I've never heard it explained like that. So I appreciate the uh, succinctness with which you explain that. Um, so what I, what I'm hearing you say is that the left-hand path is a bit, is more modern and came about because of how restrictive people, restricted people felt from yes. the right-hand path. Mm -hmm. yes. Okay. Um, so how old is the left-hand path, would you say? You know, I can't give you an answer for that right now. I would, if I was going to guess, I would say around 4,000 years. And then the more modern things that we have right now, um, you know, there are so many different modern, you know, tantric, 
practices and expressions. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm a traditionalist, so I like people going to primary sources and I like people, you know, knowing where their material comes from. So my preference would be that somebody say, hey, this is my modern interpretation of Tantra. You know what I'm saying? That would be my preference, but that's not how it gets presented to people. But I think those practices are only a couple hundred years old. I mean, they're not old. They're like, we're talking hundreds of years, not thousands. And that's nothing on the lifetime of the practices that we're talking about. The, right. the actual traditional practices. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. Okay. And I mean, and it just, I feel like it's because I'm your student that I feel that way too, but I don't, why, kind of like I said earlier, why am I going to do something that this person I don't know is telling me to do, but you know, Patanjali and then several other thousands of people after him decided to do all of this or decided to practice all of these things. And their lived experience also shows this. Well, I think one of the things that's important to note about these practices specifically, and it's specifically about more modern tantric practices, is that I think there is a desire, a collective desire to heal sexual trauma. And the, the collective sexual trauma that we have as a Puritan society in the United States, for example, is immense. You know, we've all been shamed, you know, as a general collective for our bodies, for sexuality, for, you know, um, insert whatever it is, you know, shame is a huge part of the way we identify and talk about sex. And so I think it's liberating to, to take something that is an ancient practice and marry it with, you know, these themes that have largely disrupted our natural state of being when it comes to our sexual exploration and expression. However, again, I would love for there to be a little bit more like scaffolding, I think, around it. And, but not but, and this is, this is one of the fundamental things that we as teachers in the industry need to consider is, you know, this is an industry that's largely unregulated. You know, if I go into a school and I want to teach calculus or algebra or geometry, I'm going to have a particular roadmap, a guideline, regardless if it's a public school or a private school or a charter school, there are going to be things I have to teach to prepare individuals to live in society. But if we're starting to talk about yoga, you know, everybody is sort of has the latitude, the freedom to teach what they want to teach. And so, you know, from even studio to studio or teacher to teacher, there is so much room for interpretation as to what they want to teach and how they want to integrate it into their into their class. And I think that's great. I really do. I think that's fantastic. And I would encourage people again to go back to those primary sources to leverage the primary sources and then say, hey, you know, I really, I can see where this primary source is a foundation. And this is a need that I see in society and in, and in the community. And this is how my offering can meet that need and help that need to be, you know, fulfilled or, or, or you know, met in some way. And then that creates something different than I think what 
is out there right now. I think a lot of what is out there right now is fosters different different things. It fosters dependency, fosters you know um, insecurity, fosters you know um, you know uh, it, it can even re-injure trauma. You know the 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 things that are happening because there isn't that regulation um, sometimes are not. The intention might be well intentioned, but the result might not fit that intention. Yeah, the importance of remembering, always remembering that the person that is telling you, teaching you, is that they're teaching through their perception. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think that is really important. I mean, I try to always, when I'm teaching, I try to explain to people, you know, this is my lens is primary source. I'm a traditionalist. This is where I'm coming from. That doesn't mean that, you know, somebody's, you know, more modern take on, you know, Ashtanga or Hatha is not valid and relevant. It is, in fact. And, you know, in fact, there's a book I've got right here, Yoga for Bindi People. And, you know, I'm so excited to read this book. It's about hypermobility and, you know, and how yoga can really help people with hypermobility. And I think that's great. It's not the lens that I was taught through, but it's still valid, you know, and in order for us to build bridges and not walls, we have to understand that my lived experience is not universal truth. And somebody else's lived experience is not universal truth. And I have to have compassion for that. And then that allows me to hear them with open ears and a compassionate heart. And when I do that, you know, it really doesn't matter what anybody's, you know, doing. I can, I can hold space for it. I can provide, you know, objective, compassionate feedback. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I've picked up from you that is preface, prefacing a lot of things in training. This is my perception and then going into my perception, but always at the end of the day, we have the source text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's beautiful about Tantra. You know, it's almost like a buffet. For those of us who were, you know, raised in more organized, structured, you know, spiritual, I guess, um, situations, you know, where, where we were told, okay, you have to do all of these things in order to be whole and complete. Tantra says, here are all of the things now fill your plate with what makes you feel good. And that is what makes me, you know, really happy because, you know, some people, you know, bhakti doesn't speak to them, but some people bhakti really speaks to. And if bhakti speaks to you, then do it, sing it because it's beautiful. But if it doesn't speak to you, then doing that is only going to reinforce insecurities that are making you feel separate, you know? So if we recognize where our limitations are and we work with positive projection first to build ourselves up, then we can work with those limiting beliefs and judgments once we've fortified ourselves a little bit. And I think that's what Tantra helps us to do. And that's how my teacher did it. My teacher really helped me first with those positive projections of here are the things you're good at, here are the things that, you know, you do well, here are the things that, you know, you um, have a natural aptitude for, go to those things. And, oh, now you've got those down, you feel stable, you feel grounded in those things. Now, 
let's look at the things you don't like to do. Why don't you like to do backbends? Let's look at that, you know? Cultivating that inner resource first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because then you've got some place to go when you go into the back bend and you fall apart because you're like, I just opened my heart for the first time in 30 years. Ah! You know, if you don't have any place to go, you know, it's hard. Yes. Yes. Um, The epitome of take what you need, leave the rest Tantra is. I liked how you said filling your plate with what works for you. What's going to nourish you. Yes, yes, yes. And then the more, you know, again, you get into that samyama, that that place where you really can, and Nushala said it beautifully. In fact, the last time she was here, she literally had me in tears the whole, the whole third day um, because I didn't know that's what I was experiencing. But when you get into that practice, that um, samyama practice where it's like, or it's a state even where you are aware of both what is occurring and what that projection is, and you can see beyond it. That is, that's the result of an internal integrative practice of Tantra. Goals, Tantra goals. (laughs) (laughs) Tantra goals, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's also an emotional experience and it can be, you know, a little bit depressing. I, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about you know, the, the parts that are lonely, you know, and this is something that I've talked to, you know, my original teacher about, I've talked to Nashala about it too. You know, it's lonely when you recognize that the vast majority of, of life is a form of projection. You know, we were just at a concert this last weekend and I turned to my husband and I was like, I am the buzzkill. Why do y'all even put up with me? Why do you bring me anywhere? Because I'm the one who has ruined everything for everyone. I've ruined, <laughs> I'm like, oh, this song, it's projection. Oh, this thing, it's projection. And it's like, at, at some point when you, when you are deep in your practice and you're constantly like watching all the time, you know, you can even be in it and you can be watching even if you yourself are, activated and your own material is arising there's a part of you that's still in that samyama that that place where there is no there is no separation and that is hard because it's it's not something that you talk about at dinner and you know just a final note on that I I will say, and and this is something like you can't go back, you know, this is one of the things I remember telling my first teacher, I said, you know, you can't go back. And she said, no. And, and it just, the more you practice, the more intense it gets. And sometimes I look back and I think there was a, a, a different state of bliss in ignorance. So it's a responsibility to be in practice. Sadhana is a responsibility and it's not for everyone. You know, it's not a higher or, you know, there's no hierarchy here. There's no, nobody is more enlightened than somebody else. Everyone's natural state of being is enlightenment. 
So that's another thing that Tantra teaches is everyone is born enlightened. And it's just the projection of the world of the Maya of the mind that covers that up and keeps us from seeing ourselves as who we are. When we're in the darkness, when we don't see it, there are times where we're ecstatic and then there are times where we think a rope is a snake. But when we finally wake up to who we are, the brightness is so bright. And sometimes the darkness is so dark. And there's really no going back from that. You're, you just are where you are. And so it's not something to take lightly. It's definitely a commitment. And it's something that, you know, even in the Hatha Pratapakita, it talks about, you know, really, really dedicating yourself to mental health and well-being when you take up a path and the practice of yoga, because it can be challenging on the mind because the mind wants to create those boundaries and borders, wants to separate things into good and bad. It wants to, you know, compartmentalize into, you know, rajas and tamas. But, you know, once you really get into that practice of union and, and you are living in self-realization, there's no separation. That's kind of hard to to really I feel like fathom because I don't know that I've made it to that point where I feel like my brightness has like seared my pupils you know I haven't hit that level of brightness yet where I'm like oh my gosh take me back because this is too heavy um but that makes sense like you can't not be aware anymore yeah I forget what it, what it's called um there was one day and I asked I said what is this it's this most it's a feeling of bliss. It's a feeling of just absolute bliss. And there's a, and right next to it, like on the other side is this immense sorrow. And it's like, it's, and they're intertwined. It's almost like that movie. Um, what is it? The movie about the emotions, uh, the little feeling movie. Inside out inside out. It's just like that. And in fact, she and I were talking about it because her husband was a therapist and she was talking and we were joking about, oh, that movie, da, da, da. but you can't have it. That's the non-duality of it. You cannot have the bliss without the sorrow. You cannot have that feeling. And when you feel bliss, you recognize it's not happiness. That's not bliss. It's not elation. It's not euphoria. That's a misunderstanding, you know? And so it's, I mean, it's well worth it. It's also, it is, um, it is a, a different state of being. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. Absolutely, Spider-Man. <laughs> I tweaked it a little bit there to work for me, but it worked. <laughs> it worked. It did. So well, it has been, yeah. Michelle, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, just to kind of cap it all off, because I feel like really what we've come to is like Tantra encompasses almost all if not all practices that you can find in, in the yoga world and that what works for you is beautiful and if it doesn't work for you that's okay mm -hmm. yeah definitely it is it is definitely a, a take what works and leave what doesn't sort of experience and you know it's another thing when and I'll, I'll leave y'all with this when we were in Kuwait I went to a rug dealer they're called the souks there so I went to the rug shop 
the souk. And we all wanted to buy rugs because that's what you do when you go to the Middle East, you buy rugs. And we were ready to throw down, you know, thousands of dollars for these rugs. I, I wasn't ready. Everybody else was ready. I was like, God, I don't have any money, but whatever. They were all excited about this. And all of these women were like, well, I want one, you know, I want it to be straight. And the, the rug dealer was like, you don't understand. The straight ones are made with machines. The ones that are crooked, where one side is longer than the other, where the design maybe isn't quite right, those are hand woven and they're priceless. That's what Tantra is. It's hand woven and it's priceless. Oh, that's going to make me cry a little bit. Okay. On that note, <laughs> thank you, Michelle, for sharing time and space with us and wisdom with us. It is always such an honor to share space with you. Oh, so, so much. I feel the same. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you, listeners, for being here, and we'll see you next week. Right. Bye-bye. If you're interested in learning more about Tantra Yoga, check out my Vinyasa Practices 200-hour yoga teacher training that's hosted online. You can find the link to this course in our bio. This course was co-created by Michelle Young, CEO of My Vinyasa Practice, and Anapolar Cruz, Yoga Therapy Program Director for My Vinyasa Practice.